the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. The reading this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 12 and it's verses 1 to 12. I'll finish with verse 13. This is entitled, God's Discipline Proves His Love. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. Now he is seated in the place of highest honour beside God's throne in heaven. Think about all he endured when sinful people did such terrible things to him so that you don't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And you have entirely forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you, his children. He said, my child, don't ignore it when the Lord disciplines you. And don't be discouraged when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes those he accepts as his children. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who had never been disciplined? If God hasn't disciplined you as he does all his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not not really his children at all. Since we respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us, should we not all be more cheerfully submit to the discipline of our heavenly father and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards there will be a quiet harvest of living, of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. 
Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. Well, isn't that great? Thank you, Iris, for reading that. I heard a few chuckles there because we laugh at ourselves, don't we? Because we hear ourselves being mentioned in the Bible. We go, oh, yes, that's me. I, it's a bit of a daunting thing. I, I can't quite work out whether I'm speaker number seven, eight, or nine today, so I'll try and be very lively and keep you all awake. Now, let's think about the book of Hebrews. Can we have the first slide up, please, Daniel or Luca? Whoop, there we go. The letter to the Hebrews. Now, I've, I read the Good News version of the Bible, and it has a little introduction for each verse. It says this, The letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who, faced with increasing opposition, were in danger of abandoning their Christian faith. That's worth knowing, isn't it? The whole book of Hebrews is in that context. Can we get these people to hang on to their faith and not lose it? We don't know who wrote the letter. You know, who wrote it? Paul? Luke? Uh, maybe Barnabas, maybe Paul wrote it and Luke translated it into Greek. We don't know. Last week, Murray spoke to us about what I'll call the faithfulness chapter, sometimes called the faith chapter. And please remember that faith equals faithfulness. The words pistos and pistos, pistis and pistos in the Bible can be translated either as faith or faithfulness. So whenever you see the word faith in the Bible, the translator decided to write faith. He could have written faithfulness instead. That's why the Bible says God is faithful. Because after all, God doesn't need to believe in things he can't see, does he? Because he can see everything. But God is faithful because he's, he carries on doing things. James's words are this. James said, faith without works is dead or useless. And of course he said that. Pistos comes from a word that means to be persuaded. And if you're really persuaded, you'll take a big step of faith to start and you'll keep on going faithfully. And that's what happened with the people we heard about last week. Faith without works is dead because it isn't faith at all. Because you can't be faithful if you don't do anything. Can you name any of the heroes that Murray read about? Here we are. This might wake you up. Who can name any of them? Abraham was? Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll say it like a parrot because this is being recorded. Come on, give me some more. What do you say? Moses and Moses' parents as well. Who else? Enoch was there. Samson was, yes. So here we go. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Moses and his parents. Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. Plus, as Murray says, lots of unnamed heroes who don't even get their names in there. But we know they were heroes anyway. Do you like a challenge? There are different people. Some people don't like to have their thinking challenged, and some do. Today's sermon is challenging. And if you feel bad at just hearing that, well, you're in group one. So please be gracious, because people in group two like to have their thinking challenged, and they like to hear a challenge. As always, I'm not trying to cause controversy. In fact, the opposite, as Murray was referring to at the Hui. Other people may have good reasons to see things differently to us. If we understand that, then some of the arguments that Christians have are silly. We could get along better if we understand why other people think like they do. Maybe we're both right. Or maybe we're wrong and the other person is right. <gasps> so, shock, horror, yes, that's right. 
The word, the, the chapter Hebrews 12 starts with the word, therefore. My teacher used to say, whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. That was fair, wasn't it? Norader. Therefore means, because of all that stuff that Murray talked about last week, because of all that, because of Enoch and Jephthah and all of that, then what we're going to talk about this week. That's what it means. Norader. There are lots of reasons to keep being faithful, but the writer of the Hebrews chooses a surprising one. Witnesses. Now, what are witnesses? Summons who's seen something. Do they make a difference to what we do? Yes, they do. A couple of weeks ago, I was involved in a drama in town where a, a man had had a, a, a young woman had managed to sort of escape from a man and but he'd taken off in a car with all his stuff. And so the challenge we had to face, and by the way, the police just wouldn't come, the challenge we had to face was, could she get her stuff back without being pulled into the car and abducted? So she had the great idea that we'll do this transaction right in front of the mobile station. Guess why? Witnesses. Two staff on board, who are staunch as, Janie was on duty, and cameras. So she says, we'll do it when the cameras are there, because she knows that her could-be abductor is less likely to misbehave if there are witnesses and cameras. When I was a teacher at Huntley College, uh, Roy Willison, who you will remember, we were talking about adult students and why it's good to have adult students in the college. And Roy said, one reason is because if we have adult students in our class, teachers teach better. Do you believe that? You might think it shouldn't be so, but maybe it is true. Now, when little Johnny is going to be in the school show, he works hard in all the practices, but the hardest he works to do his very, very best is when the most important witnesses are there, it's show night, and mum and dad and auntie and grandma are there. That's true, isn't it? The most important witnesses who make us do our very, very best are those we love and respect, or important people like the king or the mayor, or people we hate. It's true, isn't it? We don't want them to make fun of us. Now, I want to show you a picture here, something to think about. This, do you know this woman? I don't, all right? I just picked a, a random picture off the internet, but I want to tell you something that that woman might say. She might say this, I am the first person in my family to ever graduate from university. My mum and dad are very, very proud of me, and I know my nan and koroa too. They always wanted me to go to university. They've passed on now, but I know they'll be looking on and they'll be really pleased. Does that worry you? You see, doesn't the Bible warn against getting in touch with the dead? Yes, it does. The Bible warns against something called necromancy or mediums, people who claim that they can get in touch with people who've passed away. But this woman isn't claiming that. What she says is, my nan and koro are looking on and they're happy to see how well I'm doing. And I don't think the Bible says that that is wrong, but it might not be a way that you are used to thinking. Who could the writer have used to call us witnesses for our Christian life to keep us on our toes? Well, he could have said, what about your parents? They're watching. If you're a little brat, they're not going to think much of Christians, are they? And that would be true, wouldn't it? 
Or he could have said, what about your spouse? You've got a spouse who doesn't know Jesus, and he or she is watching on to see what it's like to be a Christian. Or he could have said, your children are watching you and your speedometer to see how Christians behave. Or he could have said, your boss is watching because he's got a downer on Christians and he's trying to find fault, so keep on your toes. Or he could have said, your workmates are watching, which is true, but he didn't. The writer to the Hebrews picked dead people, people who've passed on. The writer to the Hebrews says, that's why we stay faithful. It's because they are watching us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's why. Isn't that strange? That's the why. Now let's look at the what. So the witnesses are watching, so what? Well, there's another big surprise at this point. Having picked Jewish heroes to talk about, why did the writer pick Jewish heroes? He's writing to Jewish Christians, all right? But suddenly, suddenly the writer switch, switches to something totally different. A Roman picture. A picture of a race. Did Jews race? No, they didn't. In fact, it wasn't in the Jewish culture to race. But in the Greek and Roman culture, it was very, very elevated. I mean, of all the sports that they could play, running race was just way up there and the others were just way down here. So the race was huge. You've heard about the early Olympics. Some of the Jews did run in races, but they'd run in the Roman races. We know that because it was quite controversial. And Jewish people used to write and grumble, our young men should not be taking part in this kind of thing. This is not what Jews do. They got into trouble. Now, the passage says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every encumbrance or weight and the sin that so easily entangles or the sin that clings so closely. Have a look at these guys running and tell me, what weight have they thrown off? Everything. Picture the guy at the front there saying to his coach before the race, Coach, can I just take a bottle of water in case I get thirsty? No, this is a race. Can I take a muesli bar in case I get a bit hungry halfway through the race? No, we don't do races like that. Can I please uh, take my lucky rabbit's foot? My nan gave it to me. No, I'll hang it around my neck. No, because they knew that if you want to race, you don't take anything with you no shoes no clothes no sponsors badges boy they couldn't have made much money out of sport in those days today i'm not going to talk about sin we know oh and by the way i'll just mention that you probably know that for the first several hundred years and also much more recently christians were always baptized naked no you can't wear your hair clip everything Everything had to be left behind when you went in to the waters of baptism. And this was very much an illustration of you can't bring things into the kingdom of God. You can't bring your stuff. It's hard for a rich man, isn't it? So today I'm not going to talk about sin. We know it entangles. We know it clings closely. We know sin trips us up. We often talk about it. Greed, lust, laziness, gossip, anger. But today I'm going to talk about weight 
or encumbrance. Because the writer clearly tells us that sin is only one kind of weight. Today we're going to talk about weights that hold us back, but they aren't sinful in themselves. Just think for a moment, what might those weights be? Mainly today I'm talking to myself, but you're welcome to listen in if you would like to. First of all, let's talk about things. We have so many things. They have to be stored and cleaned and insured and licensed and maintained and kept secure. Our things take our time and attention. I've heard that there are professionals who offer a service to come into your house and declutter or help you get rid of your things. Is that true? I've also heard that there's a television show that sort of features the same thing going on. Is that true? It is, you see. So obviously you find it quite entertaining if you knew that. You might have even watched it. And then you can say, ha ha, she's got more stuff than me, but all right. So our things can hold us back in the race. Does that mean we shouldn't have any things? Hmm, difficult, isn't it? This is the rich young ruler. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you own and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me, said Jesus. Everything. That young rich man was told that to really know God's peace and to, to, you still lack one thing. To have everything that he had lacked, he had to get rid of everything. Quite controversially. Couldn't do it. It wasn't here that this whole idea about the camel trying to get through the eye of the needle came through. Hmm. Let's have a look at this person. Who's that? When Mother Teresa died, what did she own? As far as I know, she owned two saris and a bowl, a food bowl. And then what about Jesus? What did he own? The clothes he stood up in, that's all. In fact, by the end, they'd been taken off him. Can anyone here make any case for us to have things? All right. In Romans 15, Paul wrote this. My host Gaius, in whose house the church meets, sends you his greetings. Gaius had a house. It must have been a reasonable sort of a house because his house was where the church had their meetings. And not only that, but Gaius was well enough off that when, when, when Paul stayed in that town, Gaius hosted him. Paul had a place to stay, food to eat, and a place to meet all the Christians. You see, if you actually look, you will find that a number of followers of Jesus had successful businesses and houses because usually the church would meet in someone's house. And in Colossians chapter 4, this is written, Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Now, in modern language, we'd say employers, be just and fair to your employees. You see, it seems that being a Christian is quite compatible with actually having a business and employing people. But there are ways of doing it. God has to be in charge of your business. Now, I've known modern people with houses, lots of houses, and they rule their life. All they can think about is these jolly houses they own. Uh, I know other people who have a number of houses, and they believe it's their Christian calling to provide decent, safe housing at a reasonable rent for ordinary people. Is that a calling? Would a Christian do that? 
Yes, you see, somebody said over here, I think, it depends on how this thing controls you. I also know people with land and businesses who are really good at making lots of money. But I know people with land and businesses who provide food for us all and they employ people and they give them the dignity of work and they help those employees provide for their families and they support all sorts of other good things. CAP, you know I'm involved with CAP, a lot of the money for CAP comes from people who are wealthy and give big amounts of money. They have businesses and that's what they like to do. Robert Laidlaw was a famous New Zealander too who supported almost everything you can think of. So sometimes it seems that God wants Christians to have things. Who's this? Keith Green. Keith Green. I went to probably what was his last conscious, con <laughs> his last concert as far as we can figure. It was in California and he, he stood up and he said, look, things mustn't control us we are in charge of them he says this piano and because the piano was what made him famous this piano means nothing to me if it's not helping me serve god i'll get rid of it powerful isn't it he was famous some people say to me oh, i have a big bike a big motorbike and i'm going ah, does that make sense to me no it costs more than a car and it only takes one or two people do but what people say to me is, you know, we get on this big bike and we go around, a few of us stop, and then people come up to us and start looking and talking, and we tell them about Jesus. We went to the brass monkeys and we gave out hot soup and shared our faith. Okay. The bike itself is an evil, is it? It could be a weight, but it's not a sin. Sometimes things were helpful, and now they're a weight. This reminds me of Jackie Pullinger, who was in Hong Kong. You might have remembered hearing about her. And she, she needed some money for her mission in Hong Kong where she was working with the drug addicts. And God said to her, sell your oboe. Well, I get emotional even telling you about this. She said, if you haven't had a precious instrument, you don't know what it costs to get rid of it. See, her oboe wasn't only a beautiful instrument, but it was a link to her culture. She was an English woman in Hong Kong, and she came from a symphony orchestra, and it was a means to earning a keep because she taught oboe to rich Hong Kong girls. And to be asked to give that up was huge. But that had been a precious and helpful thing, but it was a weight now, so she sold it. Ouch, I feel emotional just telling you about that story. So should you have things or not? Are any of your things past their time it's not my job to tell you if you want rules and people to tell you what to do you can join the Muslims or you can go to the Jehovah's Witnesses or you can go to Gloria Vale my job's to help you think and to learn to listen to God for yourself what about commitments are commitments good well this building wouldn't be here unless somebody had committed to building it and all the things that happened today, the power's, the power's on, the instruments are here, the muso's played, people talk, I'm here talking. It's all because of commitments. People said, yes, I'll do that, and they did it. So commitments are good things, aren't they? We count commitments. How many commitments have we had to Jesus Christ this year? Oh, we've had three or whatever. Some people even commit to strange things. I mean, why, why, would, you, <laughs> why would you run around crashing into people and falling over and bashing yourself up to try and gain possession of a bag of air. Why would you do that? 
I don't know, makes no sense to me. But God can use that. I've known people who've played this strange sport of rugby who say it's a way of bonding and that your teammates look on you as a sort of a pastor. And I've known Christian rugby players who've made a real difference in the lives of their teammates. There's something bonding about sport, isn't there? But there we are, everyone to his own. And I have to admit, rugby came from England where I come from, so there we are. Can't blame you fellas for it. Could, could we ever commit to things that don't help us, that become a weight? We could, couldn't we? Sometimes commitments are good for a time. Like I work with a lot of people whose lives are quite um, disorganized, and I say to them, you, you need some focus. Why don't you volunteer to go into the St. John's shop and volunteer there? It's useful. It's helping people. The people there are lovely and they'll support you. It gives you a focus, a reason to get up in the morning and a bit of discipline in your life. Why don't you? So some of them say, yes, they do and they, they will. But later on, they might come to me and say, oh, don't go to the St. John's shop anymore. And that's because they've moved on, see? They've actually moved on. And, th- and now God's leading them into different things. It was a good habit. Uh, my, I have a daughter called Hannah. I was on the church leadership team here for a few years. And then I, I decided not to stand again. And she said, good on you, Dad. It's good to hear that you've stopped doing something. Anyway, you were always called to work outside the church. She's right. Now, there's nothing wrong with me being in the church leadership team, but the time came when it was finished. So should you have commitments or not? Are any of your commitments past their time? What about habits? Some habits are always good, aren't they? Like what? Yep, brushing your teeth is good. Starting the day with a prayer, reading the Bible trying to say hello to someone new every day. There's all sorts of good habits you could build. <laughs> Somebody laughing at me. Isn't that a good thing? It's a good thing, isn't it? Paying your bills. Yes, please. Pay your bills, for goodness sake. Oh, don't get me started living in a town where Christians don't pay their bills. Oh. Now, some habits are always good, and we encourage them. And some habits are bad, and they're destructive, like, and they're sin, like addictions. They're not good. But other habits aren't sin, but they're a weight. I'm going to tell you two stories of men who gave their lives. These are two totally separate stories that I heard at different times in my life. The first one is this. A man used to go to the pub every night. His life revolved around the pub and drinking. And one night he met Jesus Christ and he said, that's it. I'm never going to the pub again. And he didn't. Was he a good guy? He was a good guy because he was trying to build a good habit. And so that was it. No more pub for him. I heard another story, different time, different place, where a man used to go to the pub every night. Spent all the time drinking with his mates, and he met Jesus Christ, and after, he said, I can't wait to get down to the pub and tell all my mates about this. Was that good? Yeah. You know, if I had nine days in my week and was 25 years old, I'd try and get down to McGinty's every Thursday night. Because people, people are open, aren't they? They sit around, well, I would. I don't. But, but sometimes it's good to go where people are. In England, the Salvation Army go to the pub all the time. You can drink lemonade, drink anything you want, but that's not the point. But in England, uh, the Salvation Army are known for visiting the pubs. They go around the pubs at night and talk to people and counsel them, sing them a song. And the pub keepers like it because they bring light and joy to the place. Well, do do your habits help you run your race? Are any of your habits past their time? What about relationships? God wants us to have strong and lasting relationships, doesn't he? 
What's the most important relationship of the lot? Our relationship with God. But marriage for a lifetime is right up there too, isn't it? But can a relationship be a weight? Could it hold us back? I had a friend called Mary who'd grown up in a religious background. She went to Catholic school and to church. But in her early 20s, she met Jesus Christ for the first time ever. And she went home and said to the man she lived with, that I should say, she and her man were very, very much into heavy drugs. Her life centered around drugs. She met Jesus and she went home and said to this man, I have just met Jesus. Do you want to meet Jesus too? He said, no. She said, then we're through. Goodbye. And she never saw him again. They weren't married. But she realized that if she continued in that relationship, it would drag her down. It would be a weight. And Mary walked out of it that very day and became a woman of God. Good for her. Do your, do your relationships help you run your race? Are any of your relationships past their time? The Bible says, let us run with endurance, the race set out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, that means have a him, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's why people wear a bracelet that says WWJD. What does that stand for? Murray doesn't know, but what do you, you probably do? What would Jesus do? See, consider. What? <laughs> I knew he'd say that. See, this guy on the screen there, have a him. He, consider means stop. Have a think. It says, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider takes time. Sit down. Have a think. Think about Jesus. Don't rush it. The Bible talks about discipline, and we have ideas of what discipline is. What does discipline mean? Punish or tell off? It might mean that. I read a story which was about a man who, who had a business, and he was always being rude to customers. So he went to the joke shop and bought himself a joy buzzer. Do you know what that is? It gives you an electric shock. <laughs> oh. He put it in his pocket, and every time he was rude to a customer, he gave himself an electric shock. But the shock wasn't the point. The outcome was the point. Because real discipline is about results. You know, when people get up early and go to the gym, that's not the point. The point is they want to get fit. Or look good, I hear. Uh, (laughs) I've been reading a little bit about this. uh, Can you see what's happening there? Snow swimming in Russia was always an old guy's thing, but there's a whole bunch of young people are getting into snow swimming. Ah, getting up in the morning and going snow swimming doesn't sound fun for me. For the moment, all discipline seems unpleasant. But they say it perks them up. It makes them feel vigorous. It gives them better skin. It gives them health. It stops cellulite, and they never get a cold. Because the point of discipline is the result. As we mature, we become more self-disciplined. We need less outside discipline. The people reading this letter, the Hebrews, were not mature. They needed a slap. And the writer pointed out that what seemed like harsh punishment was meant for their own good to bring them to holiness, righteousness, and peace. I went to a school, and the, uh, I, I used to travel to a lot of high schools and speak, and, and the principal said to me quite worried one day, How's discipline at our, what do you think of the discipline at our college? And I said, I think it's good. 
He said, but when all the students came in to the hall, they were all chattering away as they took their seats. I said, yes, they were happy to be there and catch up. And then as soon as you stood up the front and said, right, hello, everyone, listen, please, they all were quiet and they all looked. That's discipline. I went to other schools where the kids walk in and the teacher's going, stop talking. I, what, I, you're not going to be talking when you come in. Be quiet. That's rotten discipline. This sucks. All right? I could see colleges with good discipline because there was no fuss. <laughs> One day I went to, to Tuakau College and uh, Rachel's dad was, was the deputy there. And, and afterwards, Tim Foy read out this list. Right, these people, please stay behind. They've got a detention. They have to move furniture. And so he read out this list and they all came up to do, move the furniture. And another guy came up and he says, you forgot me, sir. He says, oh, I know you had your broken arm. He says, yeah, but I could still do something. That's good discipline. See? Good relationships. Uh, Papua Nui Junction inspector came to see me when I was at Papua Nui Junction School. And we had a, a day and the kids went through all their stuff. And at the end of the day, he said, well, that was a nice day, Mr. Welsh. But do you have uh, any discipline in this school? I said, that's why I was hoping Mr. Clawton would be my inspector. He knew what this school used to be like. Yes, we had excellent discipline. So much that if you were there, you wouldn't have seen it. Everyone was just happy and got on with their job. At Rako Manga School, we only had one classroom rule. You know how school rules are all up? Our classroom rule said, Kia ngawari, etahi ki etahi. Um, it, be kind to one another. That was the only rule. And if anybody did anything that wasn't quite right, you say, hang on a minute, is that really being kind? Oh, no, Matua, sorry. And our little girl, Esther, our youngest, all you had to say to her is, Esther, that's not really the right thing to do. You never had to yell at her or bash her up or anything. See, that's good discipline. To me, good discipline means very little fuss. So you could say, well, in our church, do we have good discipline? Yes, because there isn't much fuss. But we never stand anyone down or stand them up or tell them off or anything. No, we just behave as Christians should. This is good discipline. That's what it looks like. Who were the most disciplined people ever in the world? Who were they? Who were the most disciplined people? Watch the slide. Are you watching it? The disciples were the most disciplined people, weren't they? Their whole life was discipline. They walked with Jesus. They ate, laughed. They grieved with Jesus, they slept with Jesus, they woke up and peed with Jesus, they washed with Jesus, and they got told off too. Luke 6.40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Disciple means student, a learner, or a follower. So with that in mind, let's look at what the Bible says about discipline. Now to provoke our thinking, I've changed the word discipline to discipling. I think that might make the meaning clearer, but as always, you must be the judge of it. God disciples his sons. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take lightly the discipling of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciples the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipling. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not discipled by his father? If you do not experience discipling like everyone else, then your illegitimate children are not true sons. Furthermore, we've all had earthly fathers who discipled us, and we respected them. Should we not much more submit to the father of our spirits and live? 
Our fathers discipled us for a short time, as they thought best. But God disciples us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. No discipling seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your limp hands oh, and your weak knees. Oh, make straight paths for your feet. Can't we just go over here for a while? No. We've got a race to run. So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Let's sum up. Heroes of the faith are heroes of faithfulness. Our heroes who've gone before are watching us. Life is like a race. We have to keep going. Sin can hold us back in the race, but so can other weights. Possessions, commitments, habits, relationships can help or hinder our race. Every person has to answer to God for themselves. Are we willing to look at our lives and lay aside weights if we need to? Are we going to have our song to finish with? We are. The song is called I've Decided to Follow Jesus. It's a nice little kiddie song. And my mind was changed when I realized that this song is written using the last words of someone who is just about to be killed for being a Christian. Bear that in mind as we sing the song. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.